Episode 4, The Beatles, A Hard Day's Night Soundtrack. The Beatles come to America. Yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome to the Beatles Come to America podcast. I am your host, Tom Gowker, along with the Beatle guru, Brooke Halpin. Today, we're talking about the Beatles, a Hard Day's Night soundtrack. This was released on July 10th, 1964. They are so busy, they should be sleeping like a log. Before we get into this episode, got some housekeeping notes, and then we'll get right into it. I have a podcast called Something Came From Baltimore, which is a music interview podcast. It's more jazz, R&B, and blues. It's not really about Baltimore, but I want you to subscribe. The link is in the show notes. We want you to be a part of that Be More music scene. The Beatles guru, Brooke Halpin, is all-knowing when it comes to the Beatles, and he sweats that Beatle DNA, and we want you to follow him on Come Together with the Beatles and Brooke Halpin. That link is also in the show notes. And then we have more work for you. We have our own Facebook page called The Beatles Come to America. And what we're asking you to do is to think about the Beatles albums, the U.S. albums, and rank them in order from the best to worst. And I, you get tough. It's tough. Trust me. It's not that easy. Also, we're a DIY, uh, lo-fi production. We're both in our living room. So uh, we apologize for any kind of audio quality deficit. And just remember, we love the Beatles just as much as you do. So let's get into it. It's the Beatles Come to America, Episode 4, The Beatles, A Hard Day's Night Soundtrack. Brooke Halpin, welcome to the Beatles Come to America, A Hard Day's Night Edition. Thank you, Tom. It's always nice to be with you. And I'll tell you, I remember uh, very, very clearly when this album was released. Uh, Of course, it was released two weeks in advance of the U.S. release of the movie. Beatlemania was just, it was on fire. It was uncontrollable. It just kept getting bigger and bigger, and the mania was unbelievable. It was such an exciting time, and I'd have to say that one word to sum up this album is exciting. I'd have to say that this probably is the most exciting album in the Beatles uh, repertoire. The timeline in America is intro came out January 10th. Meet the Beatles came out just 10 days later, January 20th. The second album is April 10th. And then you have the hard days night, June 24th. You have four albums and just, you know, half a year. (laughs) It's like, it's amazing. And it's all good stuff. Yeah, it is amazing, and I'll tell you that the time from the release of the second album, which you had indicated was in uh, April, and then to the release pretty much at the end of June, we were starved. It was like the anticipation, when's the new Beatle album coming out? When's the new Beatle album coming out? Because we were used to, as you said, one, two, three, boom, boom, boom. And then so it was for us at that time, going from April to the end of June with no Beatle album was a long time. <laughs> I actually really like this album because of the, the increased quality of, of the songs. 
you can obviously see there's a, a progression and really interesting stuff. So I'm excited to get into it. The very first song, which is A Hard Day's Night. This album is the first album that has only Lennon and McCartney songs on it. It's the, only, it's the first album that's all original material. So that in and of itself is a historical market. Absolutely. Okay, now the first song, you want to talk about exciting? I mean, good God, to this very day, when I hear that first chord, it's like, if you could imagine, trumpeters or a, a brass fanfare or buglers. You know, it's, it's, it's an announcement. It's a proclamation. And it's kind of like, ta-da! It's unbelievable, and it grabs your attention immediately because it's like, what the hell is this? And it sounds so fantastic. Now, one of the reasons why it's so fantastic, and we're going to have to get into just a little bit of music theory, and as you may know, I have all my degrees are in music theory and composition. This chord, has been analyzed by many, many theorists. And this chord, for them to come up with this chord, now, yeah, they were playing all the usual chords, A minor, B minor, B major, C7, you know, the usual chords. But this chord, no one ever played, no one ever even heard of in 1964. So there's another perfect example of the Beatles' brilliance an innovation as early as June 1964. Now, this magic chord, as I call it, is what it is. It's an F chord with a G on top, which is also called an F9, with a D and a bass. And then George Martin is playing a D on the piano as well. And... That's why it sounds so incredible, because no one ever heard a chord like this before. And, of course, it's the predominant instrument on the chord is what? It's George's incredible, new-sounding Reckenbacker 12-string. John also doubled it on his acoustic Gibson guitar. But it's, the 12, it's George's 12-string that just, oh, my God. So that's the beginning of the song. What a beginning. kind of tone of that guitar yeah. is universal now through the 60s. Yeah, well, George labored. That was not easy for him to do. You know, he spent a long time in the recording studio to get that right. But again, it's the signature sound of the Beatles' guitars, really, was that Reckenbacker in 64. Absolutely. You know, the Reckenbacker, the electric 12-string. That was a big part of the, the Beatles' sound. Now, also, George Martin is doubling what George Harrison plays on the Rickenbacker. So, again, it's this creative mix of, okay, he finally works out you know, how to play this difficult riff. And then George Martin, he recorded it at half speed and then sped it up. You know, all these really creative things that were going on 
again, to make the sound sound like what? No one else in the world in 1964 could have come up with a song like this. It's, it was impossible. Only the Beatles. Only the Beatles. And, of course, it's the title to the movie. And it was a, a title that came out of Ringo's mouth, actually, that John liked and that the director, Richard Lester, liked. Uh, now, the reason why Paul sings the second bit, when I'm home, everything seems to be right, is because John couldn't get up there vocally. His range was, was not that high. So that's what Paul sings that bit, which I don't know if people know about that, but now they do, thanks to you and I. <laughs> It's been a hard day's night I should be sleeping like a log But when he gets home to me He finds the thing that I do Will make him feel all right This is the first album in the U.S. that was not on... Other than, of course, we know about introducing the Beatles. We know that was on VJ, and we already talked about that. But Meet the Beatles and the Beatles' second album. And now we come into A Hard Day's Night. It was not released on Capitol. It was released on United Artists, on the United Artists label. Because, because the movie was released by United Artists. It was a United Artists. A Hard Day's Night was a United Artists movie. And Brian Epstein had signed a contract with United Artists for the Beatles to do X amount of movies. So it's something, you know, that we need to point out that this is not a capital recording. The album is not a capital recording, but just to add confusion to the mix, the singles are released on, on Capitol. <laughs> None of the singles are released on United Artists. So it's very interesting, very interesting situation, I'd say. Some people say that Hard Day's Night is the Beatles' best movie. I have to say... In some respects, it is, because it's the first. It's the first time they did a feature film. So they were excited about it, and it was a new experience for them. And it was during the peak of Beatlemania. So they were on top of the world, and now they're starring in their own movie. So again, the excitement, the word excitement keeps coming back. And as you said, the openings, there they are running down the street with their fans chasing next song is tell me why and it was recorded on uh, february 27th so it was a really fast move to get this on the soundtrack uh it was a fight with cynthia lennon that that uh, had john write the song but he was referring to motown having uh, great harmonies and uh, high energy he thought the, uh, this would be a great song for a girl group for motown and it made it to the movie, and that was like the Ed Sullivan segment of the, the movie. And I love this song. I think it's great. Yeah. In the film, it's toward the end of the film when they're doing the TV broadcast. Right. And, oh, it's, it's again, the energy is extremely high, very exciting. And, you know, when you listen to the lyrics, as you said, it could only have been written by John. 
Yeah, Paul McCartney and George Harrison would never have written lyrics like this. You know, John saying, you know, tell me why, why you lied to me. Whoa. You know, that, that's pretty heavy stuff. Those are pretty heavy lyrics. The, the vocals, the harmony, phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And it even, what's interesting is on the bridge. Is there anything I can do? Where John's singing falsetto. And no, he'd never, none of the Beatles ever sang falsetto before on, on a record. So then, that was the first. So that's a first, and that needs to be marked as a historical thing that happened on this record, on the bridge. Tell me why when you look at the track listing, okay, obviously Hard Day's Night, we know the movie begins on the Hard Day's Night. Tell me why happens at the end of the movie, during the TV sequence. I don't know why they put it there. And then again, side one with And I Love Her, which was done earlier in the movie, I, I don't I don't understand the sequence. And then I should have known better. It should have been the second song because they're on the train. And we'll talk about that when we get to it. But I, I think the sequencing of the U.S. release on United Artists of A Hard Day's Night is not correct. I, I don't like it. I don't like the sequence. Yeah, I'd go even further that the, the British version is fantastic and this album is not fantastic and it's only because of the instrumentals that are part of it the hard days night the that album to me is like the a really great album the soundtrack does not americans were real you know we understood soundtracks we were we buy things with soundtracks i bought the live and let die album just to get the paul mccartney song and all the instrumentals that came along with it, you know, you tolerate. And even with the Hard Day's Night, you, you tolerate it because you just want to get to the gems of these songs. And that's awesome. But we didn't know that there was this British version that had all these amazing songs on it. If you can compare, you just feel cheated. When you look at side one of the UK release, that's the sequencing that I like. That's the way it should be. The Hard Day's Night, I should have known better. If I fell... I'm happy just to dance with you, and I love her. Tell me why, and can't buy me love. That's that's a good sequencing. So they had it right in the UK, but then of course side two of the UK version has songs on it that have nothing to do with the movie. So, but side one sequencing is great in the UK. Yeah, back to the US version. So we're at number three, which is um, I'll Cry Instead. But John Lennon said that this was a song about him being frustrated with celebrity already. I love the song. And again, lyrically, only John could write lyrics like this at that time. And as you said, it was very telling. Even though he was a superstar, he had the fame and the fortune, he was, to some extent, uncomfortable with it. 
he was not happy with that, which exactly what he wanted. He got exactly what he wanted, and when he got it, he wasn't happy with it. Now, that's pretty complicated. And John wrote this specifically for the movie Hard Day's Night. But Richard Lester, the director, pulled it. said, no, no, because the lyrics were sort of downbeat. You know, they're downbeat. They are. I've got a chip on my shoulder that's bigger than my feet. If I could get my way, I'd get myself locked up today. I mean, good God. Those are not very cheerful, happy lyrics. So Lester pulled it. The next song is I Should Have Known Better. It's the instrumental version of this song. At the time... When we had the album, and even after the movie came out, we didn't skip over the instrumentals. No, no, we li- we we could have, you know, we could have lift, lifted up the arm and moved on to the next track, but we let him go. And we, for God's sake, George Martin is the one who who did the arrangements, so you know that it's going to be damn good music. It's okay. I mean, I do. I want to hear those song, the instrumental versions. Do we need to hear this one? No, not really. You know, but does it really bother me? No, not really. So I'm neutral. I'm neutral on the instrumentals on this album. I bought it because I wanted it really bad, and I would have accepted all those instrumentals. But as time passed, I realized there was something better out there for me, and that's what kind of had soured me to that. There's there's nothing wrong with it. It's just it's unnecessary and that gets us to number five which is uh i'm happy just to dance with you i don't want to kiss or hold your hand in this world there's nothing i would rather do because i'm happy just to dance with you one of my favorite songs I love George on this song. He sings it so well. Oh, his vocals are fantastic. And people think that, well, whichever Beatle is singing the lead vocal, then that's usually the person who wrote the song. And that's generally true. But, of course, this one, just like You Want to Know a Secret, that George did the lead vocal on, which we talked about in the previous uh, interview, is that this was written by, by John and Paul. And it's, it's a great song. It's got a great rhythm. I mean, the rhythm guitar part is really quite chunky, as I'd say. I mean, John's really chunking it up. He's doing a great job. Harrison's vocal is great. And it's a sweet song. Let's face it. It's an innocent song. Because he's just happy to dance with her. That's all. He doesn't want to do anything else. <laughs> so uh, very sweet, very charming it's well done in the movie. It's during the rehearsal bits as they're rehearsing for the getting ready to do the TV performance. Yeah, and also what's interesting, it's it's just shy of two minutes. You talk about a short song. And I love the ending, you know, where the background voices are, oh, 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 which is just, again, the arranging, you know, the vocal arrangements that were going on. Or just out of this world. Oh, oh, oh. 
the next song is and i love her instrumental it's the last song off the side a I love this instrumental. I think it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Oh, part of the movie. It's one of the great. It's one of the best songs in the movie, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. But yeah, I have no problems with this, and I thank George Martin for what he did. It's a beautiful arrangement. So we're on to side B, which is a, a Hardy's Night album. It's I Should Have Known Better. I think it's a great song. It's really clean and fun. And this is them singing in the um, the train, right? Oh, I love it. Are you kidding? Again, only John could write those lyrics. No one else could write those lyrics. Now, the, of course, George is again... His guitar solo features the, the 12 string. Now, in the movie, they're on the train, right? But they're not in the train. It looks like they're in a train, but they're not in the train. They're in a, some type of a object that looks like a cargo train. And what they did to give it the movement of the train moving on the tracks is they actually had crewmen moving this object to the left and to the right to give it motion <laughs> so that it looks like they're actually on a train, but they're not on a train. That's pretty interesting just from a film production perspective. I thought we might want to point that out. Now, here, here's another thing that I find is quite interesting. Again, lyric. The lyric connections here. John. And he says, and when I tell you that I love you, you're going to say you love me too. Right? That's on the bridge. Well, Paul says the same lyric on Can't Buy Me Love, which is on the same album. Say you love me too. Now, were they aware of it? Well, certainly Paul knew the lyrics that John had put together for I Should Have Known Better. And John certainly knew what Paul was doing with Can't Find Me Love. So there we go again. Fascinating. They're both using the same lyrics. Two different writers, two different songs entirely, and same lyrics. Fascinating. I think it's fascinating. From a writer's perspective, I think it's quite interesting. Number two on side two is If I Fell. And um, if you remember the video, this is where um, they were preparing for the show and yeah. uh john was awkwardly singing to ringo a love song which was weird but we we got over because it, it was still pretty cool uh two part harmony that was just really great on on the single microphone just awesome and it felt like uh there was a double track on john's voice again and um it is a pretty beautiful song in my opinion it's one of the best love songs john ever wrote in my opinion and in the movie bit, it's kind of like Ringo was unhappy, right? He was in a funky mood, and that's why John sang that to him. It was a bit, you know, in the movie. And by the way, when I spoke with Ringo a few years ago, I asked him, I said, you know, Ringo, what's your favorite Beatles movie out of the five that uh, that you guys did? And he said, the Hard Day's Night, because it was the first. Um, interesting that he would pick that one. And I said, well, you were featured 
in the hard day's night. And, of course, we're going to get to that, you know, when he leaves the studio and he goes off walking around and he gets into trouble. But if I fell, I mean, my God, the, the harmonies are exquisite. Yeah, the harmonies on that are just crazy. Uh, they're really awesome. It's it's just a beautiful love song. and uh, It's one of my favorite love songs to this very day. The B-side to And I Love Her, by the way, as a single. Yeah, and And I Love Her is, I think, one of... Uh, uh, Paul's first beautiful love songs. Um, I love George's guitar work on it. Uh, that Spanish guitar sound. It, it's very adult, contemporary, and even jazzy. I know that there are a lot of jazz artists w- would um, sing this song over and over and over. Um, it's a beautiful song. Just a beautiful song. <laughs> And I love her. This is 1964, mind you. For Paul to come up with this song is mind-blowing. Musically, harmonically, the use of chords on this song is extremely sophisticated. Extremely. And again, we get a little bit into some music theory, but, you know, just a little bit. The song is in the key. It's you know, the different songs are in different keys, right? So you know, it's it starts off in E, goes to C minor, and then it modulates, which means it changes keys on the bridge when George plays that beautiful uh, lead guitar solo. It modulates to G minor. People don't know what the hell a C minor is, or a G minor, or a key of E. Most people don't know what the hell I'm talking about. But what they do know is that when they're listening to the song, they know something's happening. They can't identify it. You know, they can't say what I'm saying. But this harmonic changing that's going on within the same song makes it fascinating. And it perks up your ears. Your ears are going like, oh, my God, what was that? Gee, that sounds, that sounds different. And that's one of the beauties of this song. Now, you also have George Harrison, who is playing a nylon string classical guitar. Again, innovation. Now, who was playing a nylon string classical guitar in a rock and roll band in, the six, in 1964? Nobody. This was groundbreaking. And George was the one who wrote the riff. Do, 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 do. Da, dee, da, George wrote that. And to me, it's, this is certainly not rock and roll. If anything, as you said, you could say it's a little jazzy, yeah, maybe, or adult contemporary. But it's also, uh, it's an acoustic song. There's, there's no, aside from Paul's bass, you know, there's no electric instruments on the song. And I don't know if you know this or not, but at the end of the song, when George is playing the riff, do, 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 do you know what Paul does in addition to playing a little bass. Is he singing along? I don't know. He absolutely hums exactly what George is playing on his guitar. Again, I don't know anybody who was doing that in 1964. And then here's the earth-shattering ending. It goes to an entirely different chord 
a chord we've never heard before in this song. And when it hits the chord, it's like, oh, my God. What a brilliant ending to a brilliant song. And just for those theorists out there, it's called the Bacardi Third Resolution. In case you'd like to know what, what that is, that D chord. I absolutely love it. The, the next song is Ringo's theme. And it, obviously, this is a feature for Ringo. You know, they didn't, the, the director or the writers of the film didn't do this for Paul, George, or John. For some reason, they picked Ringo. And as it turned out, as we know, of the four Beatles, Ringo was the one who had an acting career more than the other three. So it's interesting that way back in 1964, he was picked out by the director and the writers to do this. But, of course, the music is this beautiful that George Martin did of this boy. And I play that every now and then on my show because it's just so damn good. Number five is uh, Can't Buy Me Love, which, you know, most people know this song. It was uh, recorded only in four takes. Then they had a lot of problems with the song, though. The song has a lot of flaws in it. They're, they're, they're saying this is where they, this is the called the bit in the field, where they escape from the TV studio and run around and, and act crazy, and uh, it's pretty awesome. This is one that's been recorded over and over and over. It's... It sold 2 million copies in the first week and went gold the first day. This song. Why you this is a complicated situation with Can't Find Me Love, and I'll tell you what it is. They had first recorded this when they were in Paris at the Path Marconi Recording Studios. That's where they first recorded it. Then they go back to London and they go to work with George Martin. Now, you can hear that the lead guitar solo, there's two different lead guitar solos going on. There is the lead guitar solo from the one that they did in Paris, then there's the overdub that George did in London. When they did it in Paris, George and John did background vocals. Of course, the final version, no background vocals. So the song kept evolving and changing. I particularly love the version that they did in Paris more than the release without the background voices. Now, the other thing which is interesting is that, you know, we talked about this, you know, it can't buy me love, is that he says the same thing as what John said in Should Have Known Better. That's the, that's the connection, can't buy me love and I should have known better. When you say you love me too, that, that's the connection there, lyrically. Now, the other thing which was happening, which nobody knew at the time what the hell Lester was doing, but as you said earlier in the interview, that, a Hard Day's Night can be interpreted as a series during the music sections of the precursors to what would be called 
music videos. And the scene in a movie of Can't Buy Me Love is a 100%, it's a, it's a music video. Absolutely, there's no doubt about it. So, again, innovation, originality, the creative level of not just the Beatles, but of course with George Martin, and now we have this great director. This stuff would not have happened without Richard Lester. It had to be Richard Lester. If it was some other director, it would have been a different movie. So we really have to give, at least I certainly have to acknowledge Richard Lester for doing such a superb job in working with the Beatles and creating music videos in 1964 decades before MTV existed. But what they're saying is that you cannot buy love. Even though they're millionaires, you can't buy love. And it's true. They could have said, they could have been cocky and arrogant about it. I've got all the money I need, and I'm going to buy me some love. going to buy me some love, yeah. Buy me some love. It could have been that. <laughs> Well, they didn't. They did just the opposite because that's how they felt, is that even with all the money in the world, you know, you can't buy love. And you know what? It's true, ladies and gentlemen. This was true in 1964, and it's true today. We end the whole album with a Hard Day's Night instrumental. I don't have any thoughts on this song. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, again, this is, this is United Artists saying, okay, well, the album, you know, has to be, can't make it too short, so we need more music on the album. Okay, fine. You know, what, what do we got from George Martin? I mean, that's what's happening here. You know, that's why George Martin did this. He did this for United Artists so that they could make an album out of the eight songs, the eight original songs of the Beatles, and that's why George Martin did the instrumentals. Absolutely, that's the reason. Do we need it from a musical perspective? No. Does it work artistically? Only in the sense that the album starts off with the Beatles and the Hard Day's Night, and it bookends with an instrumental version of the same song. That's it. Other than that, you really don't need it. I mean, the, the length of the album is 29 minutes and 29 seconds. It's not very long for an album, but with the instrumentals, you needed it. Without the instrumentals, it would not have been enough to release as an album. And what we should mention is that this album was number one for 14 weeks. Tom, 14 weeks it was number one in 1964. Can you imagine an album being number one for 14 weeks? Including, of course, that includes the four instrumentals. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, side one or just songs and not the instrumentals were number one. The whole album was number one for 14 weeks. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. I think this is probably one of the most you know, successful soundtracks of all time. It has to be. It was a four million selling uh, record, and the only reason it probably didn't sell as much is that the Beatles were in competition with the other albums that it came out at the same time. So, you know, where is your Beatle dollar going? You know, it's uh, they're in competition with themselves with the other albums and the out- future albums that are coming out. What do you think of the album cover? The U.S. album cover. I'm looking at it right now. It's perplexing because the Beatles have no mouths. 
And what's perplexing about it is they need their mouths to sing. <laughs> so this is an album of the Beatles singing, and you don't see their mouths. If anything, we should just see their mouths and without their eyes. I don't, I don't, I don't go for it. And I know it's a variation of you know the playing around with the earlier, you know, Meet the Beatles. The, the cover is not that far, far away from the Meet the Beatles cover, really. When you look at it, they just, they just cut their mouths off. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. But we need their mouths for the singing. So I would just, just assume, see their mouths. Would have been quite funny actually if you just saw their mouths. And have, then we'd have to be fun because you'd have to guess. Which mouth is it? Is that Paul's mouth? Is it John, George's, or Ringo's mouth? Mm-hmm. That's what I would have done. We are doing it. Okay, so my opinion is not as strong as yours about this album. I understand the the, the quality of the album and the energy level and that it's attached to a phenomenal movie. But when it came to my Beatle dollars, I always waited to buy this one late because I knew that there was instrumentals on it. And then when I played it, I had to skip around and, and not play the whole album through. So it's not a high mark album for me. Um, I love the project that's attached to. This is a, a low ball. I, all my soundtracks of the Beatles are in, in that same category just because of the instrumentals that are attached to them. So out of all the Beatles albums that we have right now, this is my, my least favorite. That's interesting because this is the first album that features all original material by the John and Paul. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's, I, it's the it's the instrumentals that really don't work for you. That's yeah, if, if by chance I had the British version, this would be my number one album so far. Without the instrumentals. Yes, yeah. yeah, it's just a matter of you have to admit that they they were siphoning uh, American dollars. Um, th- just the way that that they cut and slice these albums, and we have to admit it. We went for it because they were the Beatles and we had to get that those records, but they definitely took advantage of our purse strings. And when you look back at it, this wasn't one of the albums that I would reach for because of the duds in there. And it's the same with Help, and it's also the same with Yellow Submarine. Okay, Tom, well, that's all right. You know, we, uh, we accept that and we appreciate <laughs> your opinion. Uh-huh. Um, I, on the other hand, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the instrumentals don't bother me at all. So I love the album. The album cover is a disaster. I mean, for God's sake, why didn't they have photographs of some some of the shots from the movie? Yeah. I mean, why what not? the hell? I mean, that's the most obvious thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you'd have to, we'd have to go to United Artists and figure out why the hell they didn't do that. God knows there were people taking hundreds of photographs when the Beatles were making the movie. So that's a strange, strange situation there, the cover, yeah. But anyhow, I still love it. I still play it. And it's uh, great to keep you know plowing through the U.S. releases, Tom. So what's up next? What's our next one? Well, the next one, and this gets even more complicated, uh, something called Something New. Now, we can get into that next time, but that is a very uh, intriguing title. And then we can talk about, well, well, gee whiz, must be a lot of news on this album, Something New. That's got to be exciting, right? And it's still within 1964, so we're on our fifth album for the 
in one whole year. I'm excited about it. I'm excited about this album. I'm excited about all Beatles albums. Um, and I'm always glad to speak to the Beatle guru, uh, Brooke Halpin. Next episode, The Beatles, Something New. Now enjoy an original Brooke Halpin composition, The Old Dirt Road. episode.